All right, we're going to finish up our prosthetics and orthotics chapter here. Um, I'm sorry that a lot of this is so dry. It really is. It's just a lot of information. But we're going to keep going here with the orthotics section. And this may be um, one of the areas that is a little bit more high yield, depending on what they, they're looking for. So an orthosis or a brace is an external device applied to body parts to provide one or more different functions, including reduction in pain and comfort, um, prevention or correction of deformity, support and, stabi and stability, improvement in function, um, augmentation of weakness, such as uh, assist motion, uh, control of spastic muscles, limitation of range of motion for restriction in motion, um, unloading of diseased or damaged joints, a kinesthetic reminder with orthosis provides sensory and visual feedback that reminds the patient to adopt a more corrective or appropriate position or to avoid some activities or movements. Uh, biomechanical application of force and counterforce uh, requires a three-point principle. Um, while standing, the center of gravity is in the midline and just anterior to the S2 vertebrae. It's something to remember with all of this. So in general, you need to have three points of pressure in order to prop, uh, properly control a joint. So the line of gravity in general, a weight line, is the line that passes through the center of gravity to the ground. Um, it's, it passes behind the cervical vertebrae, in front of the thoracic vertebrae, and behind the lumbar vertebrae. And again, it passes just anterior to S2. The line of gravity is slightly posterior to the hip joint and tends to passively extend the hip joint. The line of gravity is anterior to the knee joint and tends to passively extend the knee. The line of gravity also passes one to two inches anterior to the ankle joint and tends to dorsiflex the ankle. This motion is assisted by the soleus and the gastrocnemius muscles. When selecting appropriate material for orthotic devices, their strength, durability, and flexibility and weight need to be considered carefully. The orthotic design should be uh, simple and conspicuous, comfortable, and as cosmetic as possible. Materials for orthotics. So you've got metals such as steel, which is low cost. Uh, it's found in abundance. It is fatigue resistant. It provides high strength and rigidity, though it is fairly heavy and it, there is need for expensive alloys to prevent corrosion. Aluminum is corrosion resistant, provides high strength, and is fairly lightweight, but has lower endurance limit under repeated dynamic loading um, than steel itself. Titanium alloys uh, have strength comparable to steel with only 60% of the density, more resistant to corrosion than aluminum or steel, but it's limited availability and high cost. Magnesium alloys are very lightweight and useful when uh, bulk instead of strength are important. Leather can also be found, which is uh, most commonly used as covering for braces and straps, covering for pelvic bands and various types of molded uh, applications, such as the girdle uh, for the Milwaukee braces that we'll go through. Rubber is uh, tough resiliency, uh, shock-absorbing qualities. It can be used in padding for various assistive devices. It seals in hydraulic mechanisms and padding in body jockets and limb orthoses. You can also consider plastics. There are thermoplastics that soften and become moldable when heated and harden when cooled so they can be molded and remolded by heating. Uh, low temperature thermoplastics can be molded at temperatures just above body temperature, um, around 180 degrees Fahrenheit, or less than 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Therefore, they can be shaped directly to the body uh, without the need for a cast. They cannot be used effectively when high stress is anticipated, as in spasticity or in lower extremity applications. Uh, the main use is in upper, upper limb orthoses. High temperature thermoplastics are used uh, to manufacture permanent orthotic devices using vacuum forming techniques. Major types include clear, uh, acrylic, uh, polyethylene, polypropylene, polycarbonate, and ABS, which is acrylonitrile butadiene styrene, and vinyl polymers as well as copolymers. Uh, thermosetting plastics develop a permanent uh, shape when heat and pressed 
and pressure are applied and maintain a, a memory. Uh, they're more difficult to use than the thermoplastics and generally cause more body irritation and allergic reactions. And examples include polyesters, epoxies, polyurethane, and foam. Carbon fiber are lightweight and high strength, but are very expensive and difficult to shape or modify. So lower limb orthoses and prescriptions. So an AFO, an ankle foot orthosis, is commonly prescribed for weakness affecting the ankle and subtalar joints. These can be made of plastic, metal, carbon, or a hybrid. Plastic AFOs are either prefabricated out of a thermoplastic or custom molded over a, a model of the patient's limb taken from a casting. Generally, they would encompass the posterior calf area and continue down posteriorly by the ankle and extend down the plantar surface of the foot to assist in dorsiflexion and limit plantar flexion. The uh, anterior Velcro strap closer, uh, is closer, closure um, at the proximal calf. The design of the trim lines and the design of the foot plate will help determine the structural support and rigidity of the device. The following, t uh, the following includes typical uh, trim line designs. So a posterior leaf spring is uh, most flexible plastic. Uh, it's the most flexible plastic AFO with a very thin plastic band behind the ankle, allowing for the patient to overpower the brace during push-off or plantar flexion phase, yet allowing dorsiflexion assist and positioning of the foot during swing phase. This design is typically used for flaccid foot drop. A semi-rigid rigid AFO has a trim line that is just behind the malleoli and provides increased mediolateral insta or stability of the ankle and dorsiflexion positioning of the foot. There's less motion that is allowed with this brace design and the patient cannot easily propel during push-off. This design is most commonly used for patients who have foot drop with some extensor tone and or mediolateral instability of the ankle. And there's also a rigid or solid plastic AFO with a trim line at the malleoli or anterior to the malleoli with no motion allowed in the tibiotalar or subtalar joint. Commonly used for patients with the highest levels of spasticity and tone or when complete immobilization of the ankle is necessary. The standard solid uh, plastic AFO would typically have a, a foot plate extending through the, medial, or through the metatarsal heads, about three quarters foot length. But if the toes are spastic, and claw into a flexion position, a full foot plate should be used. Inhibitory foot plate designs are used, which put the toes into extension to help uh, reduce tone through the entire limb. This brace design is typically used for patients with the highest levels of spasticity, early to moderate Charcot joint, and for post-operative immobilization of the foot. So when considering plastic versus metal AFOs, plastic design AFOs are more desirable due to their lightweight, intimate fit, and cosmetic appeal, as well as the lack of attachment to the shoes. However, in certain instances, the selection of plastic material may be inappropriate and a metal AFO should be considered, such as if there's a risk of excessive pressure on a presence of skin, uh, skin breakdown or, uh, or a presence of skin breakdown on the leg or foot. If patients with insensate foot due to peripheral neuropathy or peripheral nerve injury should be considered candidates for metal AFOs rather than plastics. And patients with fluctuating edema should not be man uh, that is not managed with compression stockings should be considered most appropriate for metal AFOs rather than plastic AFOs. AFOs may have hinged or articulated ankle joints. In addition to preventing mediolateral instabil instability, most mechanical metal ankle joints either... Um, control or assist dorsiflexion and plantar flexion by means of stops, as in pins, or assists, as in springs. 
So indications and advantages. If there's paralysis of dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, foot inversion, or foot eversion, or if there's prevention or correction of deformities. They also reduce the energy cost of ambulation. For example, patients with spastic diplegia and cerebral palsy or lower motor neuron weakness, like polymyelitis and spastic hemiplegia or stroke, may benefit from this as well. You have single-channel single ankle joints that have three options, inserting a spring into the channel for dorsiflexion assist, which is also called a Clenzac joint, or inserting a steel pin for plantar flexion stop, or inserting both a pin and a spring for dorsiflexion assist and plantar flexion stop. You also have dual-channel ankle joints, which have both posterior and anterior channel, channels. The posterior channel functions exactly the same as a single-channel joint described above. The anterior channel provides the additional option of an adjustable steel pin to block the forward progression of the tibia at mid-stance, acting as a dorsiflexion stop, or to lock the joint in a fixed position. This can be used when the quadriceps muscle is weak or when there is charcoal joint deformity at the ankle. Moving on to knee-ankle-foot orthoses, or KAFOs, um, or KAFOs, they represent an extension of the AFO approximately, approximately to uh, control knee motion and alignment. It is comprised of an AFO with bilateral uprights, a knee joint, and two thigh bands. A CAFO may have a single axis, which is the most common, or a polycentric type knee joint. Um, the following are different types of single knee axis or single axis knee joints. You have a free motion knee joint that provides unlimited flexion, but usually has a stop to prevent hyperextension. It's used for patients with genu recurvatum, but with enough strength to control the knee in stance and ambulation. An offset knee joint places the hinge posterior to the knee joint, so the patient's weight line falls anterior to the offset joint. Stabilizing the knee during early stance phase is free to flex during, or it stabilizes the knee during early stance phase. It is free to flex during swing phase and allows sitting without the need for, uh, to manipulate the lock. It should be used in patients with knee or hip flexion contractures or with plantar flexion stop at the ankle. The patients uh, must be careful when walking on a ramp as the, knee may, as the knee may flex inadvertently. A CAFO with double metal uprights and posterior offset knee would be, good, would be a good option for an obese patient with quadriceps weakness. You also have a trick knee that allows 0 to 25 degrees of movement while in the lock position to normalize the gait. It's a free, it's a free knee when unlocked to allow sitting. You also have ratchet knee joints, which are usually used to stretch, the knee, uh, stretch out knee flexion contractures. The ratchet joint locks every 7 to 10 degrees from 90 degrees of flexion to full extension. You also have an adjustable knee lock joint, which is a dial lock, and has a serrated adjustable knee uh, joint that permits locking in almost any degree of flexion. It is useful in patients with a knee flexion contracture that is diminishing with treatment. Trigger lock knee joints prevent knee buckling. Uh, to be able to lock the knee or lock the joint, the patient must be able to fully extend the knee, either actively or passively. It's contraindicated in, pa in patients with knee flexion contractures. A deep lock knee joint um, that has a ring that drop over the joints in extension and locks them. Uh, they are designed to drop either by gravity or with assistance from the patient. A bail lock um, engages when the knee is fully extended. There's a semicircular lever or bail attached posteriorly with an, uh, that unlocks the joint with an upward pull on the bail, either manually or by backing up to sit down on a chair. Some of the disadvantages are that the bale is bulky and can be accidentally released if it hits a rigid object. It also has, uh, oh, excuse me, a polycentric knee joint provides unlimited knee flexion and extension, but has significant added weight and components that require maintenance. 
First, specifically for a CAFO, we have a Scott Craig orthosis or a Scott Craig long brace orthosis. Bilateral CAFO is designed for standing and ambulation in adults with paraplegia. They provide a patient who has a complete neurological level at L1 or lower with a more functional and com comfortable gait. It eliminates unnecessary hardware to reduce weight and facilitate donning and doffing. It eliminates the lower thigh and calf band. The components include a sole plate extending to the metatarsal heads with a crossbar added at the metatarsal heads for medial, uh, for medial lateral stabilization. Um, ankle joint set at about 10 degrees of dorsiflexion. Anterior rigid tibial band with a patellar uh, tendon strap. Offset knee joint with bail lock and proximal uh, posterior thigh band. You can have unsupported standing that is possible. With the ankles and the knees locked, hip stabilization can be achieved by leaning on uh, the, trump, the trunk backwards so that the center of gravity of the trunk rests posterior to the hip joint, resulting in tightening of the anterior hip castle and the Y ligaments. In adults, the Y ligament is the iliofemoral ligament um, or the ligament of Bigelow. It's strong, is usually strong and stable enough to provide hip pelvic stability when using a CAFO without pelvic bands. Paraplegic patients can ambulate with Scott Craig orthoses and, crutch uh, and crutches or walker using a swing to or swing through pattern gait. Going on to hip knee ankle foot orthoses or H CAFOs, a hip joint and pelvic band attached to the lateral upright of a CAFO convert the CAFO into, a hip, into an H CAFO. Indications include hip flexion and extension instability, hip abduction or adduction weakness, hip internal or external rotation instability, and complete paralysis of the leg. Reciprocal gait orthoses are a special type of HKFO. The RGO is used for upper limb paralysis in which active hip flexion is preserved. Uh, reciprocal gait orthoses consists of bilateral HKFOs with offset knee joints and drop locks, posterior plastic AFOs, thigh pieces, custom molded pelvic girdle, hip joints, and a thoracic extension with Velcro straps in addition to the control mechanism. Several designs are available, including cord and pulley designs, which are earlier versions, a gearbox cable, a single cable, a dual cable, an isocentric RGO, which is the latest design, and an isocentric, isocentric RGO. The, the cord is substituted by a pelvic band attached to the posterior surface of the molded thoracic section. Advantages of an IRGO, or an isocentric RGO, is that it's less bulky appearance with no protruding cables in the back, it may be more cost-efficient than a cable RGO with no energy loss due to cable friction. In all, RGOs, um, the hip joints are coupled together with cables or to the pivoting pelvic band in the IRGO, which provides mechanical assistance to, uh, to hip extension while preventing simultaneous bilateral hip flexion. As a step is initiated and hip flexion takes place on one side, the cable coupling induces hip extension on the opposite side, producing a reciprocal walking, uh, walking pattern. Forward stepping is achieved by active hip flexion, lower abdominal muscles, and or trunk extension. Using two crutches and an RGO, paraplegics can ambulate with a four-point gait. A walker may also be used. So going through all of these, there are quite a bit of pictures that are involved here, specifically more as we get to the upper extremities. Um, it may be something to look at reviewing on your own. I'm not going to describe the pictures other than what I'm, I'm doing so far. Moving on to knee orthoses. Uh, knee orthosis provides support to the knee joint. The type of support it gives depends on the plane of motion that is being limited. A sagittal plane uh, typically limits hyperextension of the knee, such as Jenner recurvatum. An axial rotation provides medial lateral and axial control, and a coronal plane theoretically mimics um, anatomic knee function.
Pres it's prescribed to patients with general recurvatum and to provide medial lateral uh, stability. Uh, prophylactic knee orthoses theoretically are designed to prevent injury to the knee or at least to reduce the degree to which the knee is injured in athletic activities. Knee orthoses may be used during sports and other physical activities to provide functional support or, uh, for unstable knees or during rehab after injury or, or surgery to the knee. The use of knee orthosis for the prevention of knee injuries is, in sports is uh, somewhat controversial. There are numerous designs of knee orthosis that are available. Uh, most consist of two uprights, uh, free or adjustable knee joints, and uh, as well as a thigh and uh, calf cuffs. You can consider adding a foot plate to a knee immobilizer that decreases the rotational instability of the knee. There are flexible knee orthoses that are made from an elastic material or rubber. They may include hinged metal uh, knee joints, patellar pads, adjustable straps to change tension, and anterior cutout to, the, uh, to relieve pressure on the patella when the knee is flexed. The functions include providing for comfort for patients with osteoarthritis, minor knee sprains, and mild edema, proprioceptive feedback and kinesthetic reminder, minimal mechanical uh, support, and they can retain body heat, and they are theor theoretically stabilized the patellar tracking with patellofemoral dysfunction. Now, there are uh, four systems that go along with knee orthoses. Some of them are to limit flexion, such as an anterior-directed force on posterior proximal thigh, or a posterior-directed force on anterior surface of the knee, um, either directly over the patella, or a combination of support just proximal and distal to the patella, or an anterior-directed force on posterior aspect of the calf. To limit extension, there can be two bands that are placed anterior to the knee axis, one superior and one inferior to the knee, and one band placed posterior to the knee joint um, in the popliteal area. It also has an additional thigh band with longer uprights to obtain better leverage at the knee joint. Some other types of knee orthoses are a Swedish knee cage, which is a prefabricated brace that controls minor to moderate knee hyperextension or gender recurvatum due to ligamentous or capsular laxity. It's available in non-articulated and articulated forms. The articulated versions prevent uh, hyperextension, but also permit full flexion of the knee using a three-point pressure system with two anterior straps and one posterior strap held in position by a metal frame medially and laterally. You also have a Lennox Hill uh, derotation orthosis, which is a new orthosis designed for control of knee axial rotation in addition to anterior, posterior, and medial lateral control. It's used for protection and management of sports injuries to the knee, such as an ACL injury. This is most commonly, or, or most similarly, uh, seen in athletes, like in football players that you watch, or when you watch them on TV. Moving on to lower extremity orthoses for pressure and redistribution. You have patellar tendon bearing orthoses, which reduce 50% of weight transmission through the mid or distal tibia, ankle, and foot. Examples include healing of oscalcis uh, fracture, postoperative ankle fusion, heal with refractory pain, delayed unions or non-usable fractures of, uh, or fusions, avascular necrosis of the Taylor body, degenerative joint disease of the Taylor or ankle joint, osteomyelitis of the oscalcis, diabetic ulceration of the plantar surface, and charco joint. Supports weight on the, it also supports weight on the patellar tendon or tibial flares, with a load being transmitted to the, to the shoe via metal uprights. The patellar tendon bearing orthosis also so, may have plastic bivalve design or calf corset if the patient has fluctuating edema. Because little or no ankle motion is allowed, a cushion heel or a rocker bottom is added to provide smoother gait patterns. You can also have ischial weight-bearing orthosis, which is a quadrilateral brim or an ischial or Thomas ring to relieve weight 
from the femur on, or the knee. Yeah, there's a patent bottom orthosis, which uses uprights with no ankle joint that terminate in a floor pad distal to the shoe, so the foot is freely suspended in midair. A shoe lift is needed on the opposite side to equalize the leg length. There are also fracture orthoses, which stabilizes the fracture site and helps promote callus formation by allowing weight bearing and joint movement after initial rest period to allow pain and edema to subside. It minimizes joint stiffness and reduces complications such as non-unions. Circumferential compression of the soft tissue can be used to prevent undue body or bony motion at the fracture site. There are also some lower extremity tone-reducing orthoses, and some rationales for efficacy in tone-reducing orthoses include inhibition of reflexes, pressure over muscle insertions, active and static prolonged stretch, and orthokinetics. For inhibition of reflexes, a reflex consists of a motor act that is elicited by some specific sensory input. Primitive reflexes at birth or appear at birth and become integrated once more complicated movements emerge. When the CNS is damaged, primitive reflexes reemerge and again dominate motor activity. Examples include the, plow, the toe or plantar grasp reflex, and the trigger is uh, pressure over the ball of the foot, and the response is increased tone and toe flexion and ankle plantar flexion. An AFO design uh, reportedly reduces stimulus pressure. You have inversion reflex, which uh, the trigger is pressure to the medial border of the foot over the first metatarsal head, and you have an eversion reflex, which is pressure to the lateral border of the, over the fifth metatarsal head. There are AFO designed to reduce um, abnormal tone by stimulating antagonistic reflexes. If you have pressure over the muscle insertion, there are Farber, or Farber reported in 1974 that continuous firm pressure at point of insertion reduces tone. An AFO design has the pressure on either side of the tendocalcaneus. Uh, Let me start that one over. There's an AFO design that has a pressure on either side of the tendocalcaneus and insertion of the gastroxoleus muscle groups. There are also active and static prolonged stretch orthoses that decrease reflex tone by providing mechanical stabilization of the joint and altering properties of the muscle spindle. And AFO designs that provide, there are AFO designs that provide total ankle foot contact. And lastly, orthokinetics, which were originally developed in 1927 by Julius Fuchs, an orthopedic surgeon. They focus on physical effects to materials um, placed over muscle bellies. They have passive field materials, those that are cool, rigid, and smooth that produce inhibitory effect, and active field materials, those that are warm, expansive, and textured, that produce facilitatory effect. The AFO design includes active field stimulation like a foam over anterior tibialis to encourage dorsiflexion, a passive field inhibition over gastrocnemius to reduce spastic plantar flexion, and dual orthokinetic components or concepts interrelated and applied simultaneously. Moving on to upper limb orthoses, again, this is a good area to go ahead and look at a lot of the uh, imaging, but upper limb orthoses may be categorized into the following types. You have static orthoses, dynamic orthoses, and tone-reducing orthoses. For static upper limb orthoses, indications for static use include immobil to immobilize, stabilize, and support a joint in a desired position, protect weak muscles from overstretch, prevent contractures, support structures following surgical repair, facilitate the healing of soft tissues, uh, soft tissue injuries and fractures. Complications associated with static um, orthotic use include skin breakdown, contractures, and infection. For positional orthoses, basic components include, a, um, basic components orthoses are one of them, 
In an opponent's orthosis, it's primarily used to immobilize the thumb to promote tissue healing and or protection or for positioning of the weak thumb in opposition to other fingers to facilitate three-jaw chuck pinch. It's a stabilization of the first MCP joint. Hand-thumb orthoses consist of a dorsal, uh, of a dorsal and a palmar bar ex, uh, encircling the hand with a thumb abduction bar and a C-bar to stabilize the thumb. You also have a long opponent's orthosis with wrist control attachments that are similar to short op- opponent's orthosis, but crosses the wrist. It also stabilizes the first MCP while the forearm bar maintains wrist and extension and prevents radial and ulnar deviation deformities. Examples include a long opponent's splint and thumb, pi- uh, thumb spica splints. There are also opponent's orthosis with lumbrical bars that have hand-finger orthoses that prevent MCP joint hyperextension but allow full MCP flexion. <clears throat> These prevent claw hand deformities in addition to the benefits already mentioned for opponent's orthoses. There are also opponent's orthosis with finger extension assist assembly that are similar to basic opponent's orthosis, but adds out triggers that assist PIP and DIP extension. They are used for interphalangeal flexion contractures, boutonniere deformity, or post-surgical release of Dupuytren's contracture. There's also a utensil holder or a universal cuff or splint in an ADL splint that consists of a handcuff with a palmer pocket onto which a utensil can be inserted. Typically, I see it described as a universal cuff. Finger stabilizers and static finger orthoses are, are interphalangeal orthoses with the DIP, the PIP, or both DIP and PIP gutter splints with static finger splints, aluminum, um, and foam splints. Finger orthoses are used to restrict motion of the DIP and the PIP. And generally, uh, interphalangeal um, are maintained in full extension to keep the uh, collateral ligaments stretched and to prevent uh, interphalangeal flexion contractures unless condition dictates otherwise. They are used to promote healing, such as a phalanx fracture or a DIP or a PIP dislocation, and to provide prolonged finger stretch, such as in burns and contractures. Ring orthoses can also be used for swung, there are swan neck ring splints that prevent PIP joint hyperextension through a uh, three-point pressure system that allows full, inter- uh, full IP flexion. You also have a boutonniere ring splint that immobilizes PIP in extension and prevents finger flexion through a three-point pressure system. They're essentially opposite each other. Moving on to hand finger orthoses. With an MCP ulnar deviation restriction orthoses, uh, they are used to limit ulnar deviation of the MCP with unrestricted, if possible, MCP flexion and extension in arthritic patients with ulnar deviation at the MCPs. Thumb orthoses, such as thumb carpal metacarpal stabilizers or thumb posts, these are those that stabilize um, the first carpal metacarpal and MCP joints in neutral position to protect the thumb from inadvertent motion. There are also thumb web space stabilizers and thenar web space and C-bar splints. These are hand finger orthoses that consist of a rigid C-shaped splint held firmly in the thumb and index finger web space. They function to increase or maintain the thenar space and prevent web space contractures. They are used in burns, post-surgical revision of scars, and web space contractures. You can also have wrist-hand-finger orthoses, which are resting hand splints uh, that are static wrist-hand-finger orthoses who, uh, that are used to immobilize the uh, wrist, fingers, and thumb. They are usually applied to the volar surface and can be dorsally applied or circumferential as well. They extend from the fingertips to, um, to two-thirds of the distal forearm. The wrist is in neutral to slight extension, and the digits 
in an intrinsic plus position with the MCPs flexed to 70 degrees, the IPs 90 degrees, or MCPs flex 70 to 90 degrees and the interphalangeal joints in full extension, the thumb carpal metacarpal joint in palmar abduction, and the thumb metacarpal interphalangeal in full extension. The uh, immobilization in this position is preferred because the MCP joint and the interphalangeal collateral ligaments are kept stretched, minimizing fracture joint capsule contractures, and they provide functional thumb opposition, uh, position for opposition and three-jaw chuck pinch. <coughs> wrist hand orthoses. You have volar wrist hand orthoses, or which are wrist cock-up splints, um, that extend from distal two-thirds of the forearm to just proximal to the MCP joint to allow for full MCP flexion while maintaining the functional position of the wrist and hand. These are used for resting wrist and hand in acute arthritis, wrist sprain contusion, flexor extensor tendonitis, carpal tunnel syndrome, post-surgical wrist extensor tendon repair, wrist fusion, skin grafting, contracture prevention, reduce pain, reduce spasticity, prevent ulnar radial deviation of the hand and wrist, such as in uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Now, it mentions carpal tunnel syndrome there, and if you read in other texts, like in Bradham, the idea of a wrist extension or a wrist cock-up splint also puts, puts, puts strain on the median nerve in that area, and they recommend straightening those out and keeping it more in a neutral position. You also have dorsal wrist hand orthoses, which provide the same function of the volar wrist hand orthoses with greater stabilization because of rigid dorsal hand section, and they are more difficult to fab fabricate and fit than the volar um, wrist hand orthoses. And then we move on to the dynamic and functional orthoses, such as finger orthoses, thumb mobilization orthoses. You can have thumb extension mobilization orthosis, which is a dynamic thumb interphalangeal extension splint that is used for thumb interphalangeal flexion contractures. You have a thumb flexion mobilization orthosis, which is also a, a dynamic interphalangeal, but this is a flexion splint that is used for thumb IP extension contracture. You also have a thumb abduction mobilization orthosis, which is a dynamic thumb abduction, abduction splint that's used for adduction contractures. Finger mobilization orthoses also exist with interphalangeal extension mobilization orthoses, passively extending the PIP joints, and it is used for finger IP flexion contractures, boutonniere deformities, and post-surgical release of Dupuytren's contracture. Examples include a dynamic IP extension splint, reverse finger knuckle benders, uh, capener splints, spring coil assist, eggshell finger extensions, and buddy splints. You also have interphalangeal flexion mobilization orthoses that passively flex the PIP joints used for uh, finger IP extension contractures. Examples include a dynamic IP flexion splint, a finger knuckle bender, a fingernail hook orthoses, and buddy splints. For metacarpal phalangeal mobilization orthoses, you have an MCP extension mobilization orthoses that extends the MCP joints, and it's used to extend the MCP joints in MCP flexion contractures, burns, post uh, and post-open reduction and internal fixation of metacarpal uh, fractures, as well as patients with, finger, uh, with weak finger extension, such as radial nerve or brachial plexus lesions. Examples include a reverse MCP knuckle bender, dynamic MCP extension splint with dorsal out trigger, and MCP extension assist or radial nerve splints. You can also have an MCP flexion mobilization orthoses, which flex the MCP joints, and they're used for um, MCP collateral ligament contractures, extensor tendon shortening, median and ulnar lesions, claw hand, post-capsulotomy, post-ORIF of metacarpal fractures. Moving on to the wrist orthoses, you have wrist control orthoses, which promote slight extension of the wrist or prevent wrist flexion, thus assisting weak grasp via tenodesis effect. 
Some of these include a volar wrist flexion control orthosis, which are a cock-up splint, which is wrist hand orthoses, in which the palmar section is extended, usually from 0 to 20 degrees, and it's used to tighten finger flexors via the tendesis effect and prevent wrist flexion contracture in patients with radial neuropathy. Wire extension ortho, uh, assist orthoses, or an Oppenheimer splint, are prefabricated uh, from spring steel wire and padded steel bands to assist wrist extension by uh, tensing the steel wire, thus aiding finger flexion through tenodesis effect. There are also wrist-driven prehension orthoses, um, also a tenodesis orthosis or a flexor hinge splint. It's used in C6 complete tetraplegia, where no muscles to flex or extend fingers remain intact or innervated. But wrist extension through the extensor carpi radialis muscle is intact to provide prehension through the tenodesis action and maintain flexibility of the hand, wrist, and elbow. Wrist extensors should be at least 3 plus or better to use body powered tenodesis. The proximal and distal interphalangeal joints of two finger, uh, fingers 2 and 3 and the CMC and MCP joints of the thumb are immobilized. This may interfere with manual wheelchair propulsion, and it's rarely accepted by C7 and C8 tetraplegics who prefer to use their residual motor power or utensil holders. There's an RIC, or Rehab Institute of Chicago, which is now surely at Ryan Ability Lab, tenodesis splint, which is made of low-temperature thermoplastics in three separate pieces, such as the wristlet, short, opponents, and dorsal plate over index and middle finger. It's easily and quickly fabricated, made as a training and evaluation splint for patients, and is lightweight. It uses a cord and string running from the wrist piece across the palm and up between the index and wrist fingers. The string is lax when the wrist is flexed and tightens with wrist extension, bringing the fingers close to the immobilized thumb, accomplishing a three-jaw chuck prehension. Going on to forearm orthoses, first off we have a balanced forearm orthoses, which is a shoulder, elbow, wrist, hand orthosis that consists of a forearm trough <coughs> attached by a hinge joint to a ball-bearing swivel mechanism and a mount, which can be mounted on a wheelchair or on a table, a working surface, or onto the body jacket. It helps support the forearm and arm against gravity and allows patients with weak shoulder and elbow muscles to move the arm horizontally and flex the elbow to bring the hand to the face or to the mouth. Patients with spinal cord injury, Guillain-Barre syndrome, polio, muscular dystrophy, and brachial plexus injuries may benefit from this. Requirements include some residual muscle strength of biceps and pec pectoralis with manual muscle testing of at least um, poor or grade 2 and coordination of the elbow flexion that can be used for C5 tetraplegics. You also want to have adequate trunk stability and positioning, adequate endurance in a sitting position, preserved range of motion of the uh, shoulder and elbow joints, and other uses include um, uh, may be used in spastic patients to allow self-feeding by dampening muscle tone through a friction device. Elbow orthotics assist in elbow flexion and extension. They are dynamic elbow splints, uh, static progressive elbow splints, turnbuckle elbow splints that gently elongate the uh, soft tissue over a long period in an attempt to reverse joint malalignment, such as contractures, burns, or late phase of fracture. They are not used um, in spastic muscles as they may further increase tone. A dorsal elbow extension mobilization orthoses extends uh, the elbow and provides medial lateral, lateral elbow stability and rotational forearm stability. A dorsal elbow flexion mobilization orthosis flexes the elbow and provides medial lateral stability and rotational forearm stability. There are tone reducing orthoses as well that can be used. Uh, they can be either hand based orthoses like a hand cone splint or a forearm based wrist hand finger orthoses like an antispasticity ball splint 
or a hand cone forearm splint. They can be volar-based, dorsal-based, or circumferential. They're typically worn uh, two hours on and two hours off throughout the day. Wrist-hand finger splints usually are more effective because of the extension positioning of the uh, extrinsic finger flexors. And there are rationales of efficacy of tone-reducing orthoses that include uh, reflex-inhibiting positioning, um, such as the neurodevelopmental technique or the Bobath approach. Um, there's also firm pressure into the volar surface, which is, um, can be the root or sensory motor approach. And you also have dorsal hand splints that are like a snook with the facilitation of muscle contraction by direct contact. It is theorized that stimulation of extensor muscles might produce extensor muscle contraction and balance muscle tone and or avoid increased flexor tone. Functions include flexor tone reduction, prevention of skin breakdown or maceration of palm by fingernails, increased passive range of motion via low load, prolonged stretch like a stereostatic splinting. Indications include spasticity due to upper motor neuron lesions like cerebrovascular accidents, head injury, MS, and cerebral palsy. Okay, now moving on to spinal orthoses. You, initially, we're going to talk about cervical thoracic orthoses, or CTOs, or also called cervical orthoses. There's also a soft, uh, initially a soft cervical collar, which is made of a polyethylene foam or sponge rubber. It provides no significant control of function of the cervical spine, but does provide a kinesthetic reminder through sensory feedback to, to limit motion. It retains body heat, which may help reduce muscle spasm and aid in healing of soft tissue injuries. It provides comfort, which may be due in part to the above two reasons. And indications include symptomatic treatment of soft tissue injuries of the neck, like a whiplash injury. The maximum amount of time it should be worn is 10 days. There are risks with prolonged use that include muscle atrophy and psychological dependency. Then moving on to rigid cervical collars. These are prefabricated collars or orthoses that provide more restriction to cervical flexion, extension, rotation, and lateral bending than soft collars. A Thomas collar is made of firm plastic with superior and inferior padding that wraps around the neck and is secured with Velcro and indications include soft tissue injuries. There's also a Philadelphia collar, which provides total contact in the cervical spine and a mild degree of uh, motion control. They are made of plastizote that has a rigid anterior and posterior kydex uh, plastic reinforcements and is secured by Velcro, Velcro um, closures. It encompasses the lower jaw and occiput and extends to the proximal thorax. Indications include soft tissue injuries and uh, stable bony or ligamentous injuries. They are also used when patients are weaned off more restrictive orthoses to limit sudden strain on the neck after prolonged immobilization. There are also Miami J, Newport, and Malibu collars, which are variants of the Philadelphia collar. They may provide better control but may also be more expensive. Then you have sternooccipital mandibular immobilizers, which are cervical thoracic orthoses with chest piece that are connected by uprights going from anterior to posterior to occipital plates. Um, therefore, it can easily be applied to a supine patient. It has a removable mandibular piece so a patient can eat, wash, and shave while lying supine. And indications include cervical arthritis, post-surgical fusion, and stable cervical fractures. There are also posterior, uh, poster type cervical uh, cervical thoracic orthoses that are two or four poster um, orthoses. They provide cervical spine control through mandibular and occipital components connected to the sternum and thoracic components by two or four and sometimes three posts. They provide good control of flexion and extension. Um, lateral bending and rotation are not as well controlled. Uh, they can hold head and extension or flexion by adjusting the length of the anterior posterior posters. 
They are cooler than cervical, ortho, uh, cervical collars, but also bulkier. And indications are mild or low with extension, uh, stable cervical fractures, or excuse me, mid or low with extension, stable cervical fractures, and arthritis. There's also a Yale cervical thoracic orthosis, which is similar to an extended Philadelphia collar reinforced with rigid plastic struts extending down onto the anterior and posterior thorax with strapping beneath the axilla. The occipital piece can extend higher than the original Philadelphia collar. Um, probably of more importance than these ones that we've gone over. Uh, so Philadelphia collar is one of the most common ones that we talk about. Um, but the Minerva CTO, or the thermoplastic Minerva body jacket, can be I've seen tested on it before as well. The Minerva CTO encloses the entire posterior skull, includes a band around the forehead, and extends, and extends downward to the inferior costal margin. The forehead band provides good control of um, all cervical motions. The advantage is that it's lighter weight than a halo vest, has no pins with no invasive supports, which carry risks of infection and slippage. But disadvantage is there's less restriction of motion compared to a halo vest. Indications include uh, management of unstable cervical spine, although halo vest use is usually preferred for maximum uh, motion control, but it may be preferred orthosis over halo in the management of cervical spine instability in preschool-aged children due to increased comfort and decreased weight, and because it allows early mobilization of the patient for rehabilitation, in addition to providing uh, necessary stable stability. A halo vest CTO provides the best control of motion in all planes and the cervical spine of all the uh, cervical CTO. They're also These are non-removable CTOs. It consists of a rigid halo ring secured to the skull with four external fixation pins, an anterior lateral above the orbital rim and a posterior lateral above, uh, below the largest diameter of the skull to prevent cephalad pin migration, piercing the temporalis muscle, uh, frontal and temporalis fossa, or injury to the cranial nerves. The halo supports um, four posts attached to the anterior and posterior parts of the vest of the thoracic components. Indications include management of unstable fractures of the cervical spine, especially high cervical fractures. And complications include risk of pressure ulcers with bed rest, um, usually in the region of the scapula and sternum. So some complications associated with a halo vest include loss of spinal reduction while wearing, um, while wearing a halo vest, a failure to develop spinal stability after wearing the halo, pressure sore development, pin loosening, pin site pain, pin tract infection, brain abscesses, local osteoporosis, acute equilibrium impairments, forehead scarring, dysphagia, pin penetration of the, uh, of the skull, halo ring migration, and cranial nerve palsy. There is a brief chart on page four, uh, 545 and moving on to page 546 that discusses the, uh, the restricted motion using these orthoses if you want to review that. Moving on to thoracolumbar sacral orthoses or lumbosacral orthoses. In general, TLSOs extend from the sacrum to above the inferior angle of the scapula and are used to support and stabilize the trunk, as in truncal paralysis, post-spinal uh, post fusion, post-scoliotic surgery, <coughs> and can, <coughs> excuse me, and to prevent progression of moderate scoliosis, uh, 20 to 45 degrees, until the patient reaches skeletal maturity, and also used for thoracic kyphosis. Except for the thoracolumbar sacral flexion control orthoses, TLSOs can increase intra-abdominal pressure, which in turn decrease load on the spine and intervertebral discs by transmission of the load to the surrounding soft tissue. <coughs> they also cause an increase in oxygen consumption and energy expenditure. <coughs> 
During ambulation with axial rotation between the pelvis and the shoulders, there may be increased rotation or re- increased motion at the unrestrained segment, cephalad or rostral, and caudal to the orthosis, in addition to increased energy consumption of ambulation. A Taylor brace is a flexion extension control TLSO that consists of two posterior uh, paraspinal bars attached inferiorly to the pelvic band. An interscapular band stabilizes the paraspinal bars and serves as attachments to the axillary straps. The orthosis also includes a corset um, or anterior full front abdominal support, which increases intracavitary pressure. A Knight Taylor brace consists of a Taylor style uh, TLSO with lateral bands um, and a thoracic band to restrict lateral bending. Indications include post-surgical or non-surgical management of stable thoracic and lumbar fractures. Moving on to spine flexion control TLSOs, a Jewett brace is a flexion control TLSO consisting of a sternal pad, suprapubic pad, and anterior lateral pads connected by oblique lateral uprights, counteracted by a dorsal lumbar pad as well. The uh, suprapubic band may be substituted by a boomerang band, which applies force on the iliac crest and is used in females to avoid direct pressure on the bladder. Indications um, include that it's used to permit the upright position while uh, preventing flexion after compression fracture of the thoracolumbar spine. It's also used in the treatment of compression fractures in osteoporotic elderly patients, um, which is controversial because it can place excessive, excessive hyperextension forces on the lower lumbar vertebrae, which can induce posterior element fractures or exacerbate a degenerative arthritis condition. You can also use it for thoracolumbar Schauerman's disease, and it's used in thoracic osteoporotic kyphosis with limited efficacy. There's also a cruciform anterior spinal um, hyperextension TLSO brace. This is also called a cash TLSO brace. It, anterior, it has a cross-shaped vertical or horizo- and horizontal metal uprights with sternal, pubic, posterior, and anterior lateral pads. The vertical upright joins the sternal and pubic pad. The horizontal upright connects the posterior thoracolumbar pad um, and the anterior lateral pads. Uh, it's similar to a Jewett brace for the um, indications. Uh, some cervical thoracic lumbar sacral orthoses include the Milwaukee brace, a CTLSO that is used for scoliosis. It consists of a rigid plastic pelvic girdle connected to a neck ring over the upper thora- uh, thorax by one anterior broad aluminum bar and two posterior paraspinal bars. The cervical ring has mandibular and occipital bars, which rest 20 to 30 millimeters inferior to the occiput and mandible. Pads strapped to the bars apply a transverse load to the ribs and spine to correct scoliotic curvatures. Indications include idiopathic or flexible congenital scoliosis with curves 25 to 40 degrees if the curve apex is located superior to T8. Uh, The scoliosis shows signs of progression and puberty has not finished. Uh, Thoracic Showerman's disease, uh, kyphosis, can also be considered an indication. There are also corsets and flexible spinal orthoses that are made of fabric or canvas with pouches for vertical stays. A number of different types of corsets are available, including uh, lumbosacral, thoracolumbar sacral, and thoracolumbar, and sacroiliac, and lumbar. They are the most frequently prescribed orthotic for low back pain, and the efficacy of corsets remains controversial. Lastly, there are lumbar and lumbar sacral corsets. The most commonly prescribed lumbosacral support is a lumbosacral corset. It surrounds the torso and hips and borders, uh, the xiphoid and lower ribs, pubic symphysis, inferior angle of the scapula, and gluteal fold. Indications include low back pain and muscle strain. 
There may be a special design that can be used for pregnancy, abdominal ptosis, and pendulous abdomen. The pros include kinetic reminder, uh, support abdomen, reduce load on the L1 spine, reduce excessive lumbar lordosis, and decrease lateral bending by about 29%. And the cons result that it may result in a weakening of the muscles that support the trunk. All right, so that will finish us up. I know that's a lot of information and it's not the most exciting information, but P&O tends to be a fairly weak area that people uh, test on, and I thought that it was a good job or a good idea to review all of this. Hopefully someone got something out of all of this.